sociopolitical issues, one man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Sally, Sally, Sally. Welcome to your home for the Politically Homeless, the podcast for those of you who like your politics in colors other than red and blue. If you are new here, welcome. And if you like what you hear today, you who've listened before know what to do. Share this with one friend you think might like it too. I did not intend for that to rhyme. Now, coming off the last few episodes on immigration, I've begun to realize how little control nations have over a lot of the things we want them to control. And in the case of our debate over border policy, the U.S. and much of the wealthy world have decided that their borders are a way to keep the global poor out, or at least to regulate their movement to a manageable level. And many of those same migrants are fleeing problems created outside of their borders. Wealthy nations hold the most responsibility for the climate change that's making much of the developing world tougher to live in. The Fed raising interest rates to fight inflation at home has led to political instability in countries like Sri Lanka as money flows out of the developing world and into safer dollar-denominated assets. And if we take things closer to home, much of the political division in this country was the result of companies being able to to easily export jobs to places where labor was cheaper. And all this has led me to ask whether the nation state as we know it is an anachronism or at least is due for a big update. And to help answer this question, I invited the person I always invite to answer very large questions, YDHTY favorite Ben Studebaker, to help sort out what we've learned over the last few months into something that makes sense. Now, this conversation is dense, but it helped crystallize a few things for me about the state of American politics and the world at large, which I'll share at the end. Another note, we are going to talk a lot about flows in this episode, which signifies the flows of money across the globe. And we're also going to talk about dinosaurs. Scary. Talk to you at the end. I say every three to four months, I dive into a bunch of different topics and then I sort of get lost in the woods. And then I call on you for what I've come to call my quarterly political therapy sessions because you have a really good way of helping me sew these things together into a much larger picture. And so I'm starting to ask myself if the nation state as it exists today, if our concept of a nation state is actually an anachronism, whether the idea of a sovereign nation being able to allocate resources and protect its people in a world where capital can go wherever it wants and in a world where weapons can cross borders and where huge damage can be inflicted simply by hacking the U.S. power grid. And I really want to explore this idea. So with that all out there, what are your thoughts? Yeah. States are based on territory. States, historically, pre-industrialization, they're groups of landowners. You know, a king and a set of nobles, that's people who own the land. Land is fixed. And land, you either own it or you don't. You seize it 
or you don't. The border's here or it's there. So when the wealth of a country is based on land in a very direct and straightforward way, the territorial state makes a lot of sense. As you start to have more flows, more trade, more movement of money and people, the territorial state doesn't fit that quite as well. As the state starts to provide public services, the public services it provides will be provided within its territory. So if people move into that territory, then that creates an increased burden on the services. If tax money leaves the territory very quickly, that creates an increased burden on the services. And oftentimes, the flows are faster than the state's policy can adapt. So the state may end up with a lot of people or a lot fewer people than it planned to have. It may end up with a lot more revenue or a lot less revenue than it planned to have. And this creates trouble because territorial states don't have the ability to make things come in from outside. They can incentivize, they can induce, they can encourage, but they can't force money that's outside to come in. They can't force people that have left to come back. Once you get outside the territory of the nation state, its ability to control what's going on diminishes greatly. That said, there isn't something else that straightforwardly controls what goes on. The flows in the international system are not very well governed. There are international institutions like the IMF and the World Bank and the WTO that set up some rules for managing these flows. But the rules that those institutions set up have to be enforced by states. There's no global or international organization that has a, a military that can enforce the rules. So the rules in practice get selectively enforced depending on the interests of the most powerful states that are able to enforce the rules. And even the most powerful state, because it's a territorial state, its ability to enforce its will outside the territory will be limited. If you think about the Iraq war, it's not as if the people or factions that the United States was contending with in Iraq were very powerful, but because Iraq is very far away from the territory of the United States, it's a lot harder for the United States to project power effectively in Iraq. Mm -hmm. The more you go outside the territory, the harder it is for the power to translate. So mm -hmm. there is a problem with the state insofar as the state's territorial and increasingly it's about flows. But there isn't an alternative to the state as such at this time. Right now, the only enforcer is the state. So sometimes I like to frame it as you know, the state is kind of like a dinosaur in a tar pit. Not a dead <laughs> dinosaur, but a dinosaur in a tar pit, right? Yeah. A dinosaur in a tar pit you know, can't move around very easily, can't do a whole lot. And oftentimes, the more it tries to do something, the more stuck in the pit it gets. Maybe yeah. if the pit isn't very big, maybe the dinosaur can get out. But if it's a large enough pit, the more the dinosaur tries to move, the more stuck in the pit the dinosaur gets, right? But at the same time, the dinosaur is not dead yet, and it can flail around. And if you're in the vicinity of that, it can affect you. So the state yeah. isn't irrelevant. It's still very much alive. It's a big, powerful thing that still makes a big difference, but it's in a tarp pit. And the tar pit is the yeah. blood. It's interesting what you say about territory, because 
one of the things I picked up, and this was actually a little before our last conversation. I had a guest named Bob Swara. For those of you who haven't listened to that one yet, it's worth a listen. But he had documented 2,500 years of booms and busts, financial crises. And the interesting thing that I learned from that conversation is that during the interwar period, there was this gradual corrosion of the colonial economy, which effectively said that land equals wealth. If I have colonies, I have access to resources, that is my wealth. And it wasn't so dependent on trading between these blocks, although trading did occur. And what I noticed is after that period, the US dollar effectively replaced that colonial network. And so now power and the ability to allocate resources wasn't necessarily directly related to the territory you had, but rather you're standing within that financial system. Is that part of the reason why maybe the power of that dinosaur is diminished? Or is that the tar pit in a way? Well, in the interwar period, there was a contraction of trade in the 30s. And that contraction of trade briefly gave states an enormous amount of power. If you think about what's the era when you know, where you live in the world has the greatest effect on what your life experience is, the late 30s and early 40s, it would be hard to pick a time when the spot on the planet that you're in makes more difference than the period leading up to and, and during World War II. The Bretton Woods system cushioned a growth of trade, but it prevented it from happening very quickly. It slowed it and made the growth of trade more manageable. As the Bretton Woods system breaks apart and gives way, the flows become less manageable. And then at that point, the fact that the United States is, is kind of the consumer of last resort, the fact that if you can't find a market for a good or service, the place where it ends up getting sold is in the United States, that ultimately gives the United States more leverage when there are these contests over where are the flow is going to go. So the United States has more ability to suck in dollars because the United States has consumers who can buy stuff. And that ability to suck in dollars, they're going to be Americans who are going to be buying things. They're going to be buying things with dollars. Uh, it's a huge block. It's all dollarized. It's bigger in terms of consumption as a percentage of the economy than, say, the European Union. Right? It's, mm. it's a huge consumer base. So if you're manufacturing something, if you don't have access to the American market, that's a big problem. And that has given the United States more leeway. That and the fact that oil is denominated in dollars. Mm. So if you're yeah. a petrol state and you're trying to sell your oil, you have to sell it in dollars. You, don't, you can't sell it in your domestic currency. And that means that to sell oil on the world market, you have to participate in the dollar demand system. Yeah. So if you're a state like Venezuela, you're able to get some level of autonomy from the global economic system because you have oil, but only at the cost of participating in the dollar-denominated oil system. One of the things I noticed, too, is that it's no secret that America's in a quest to redefine its national identity, that whether you talk about the 
election of Trump or whether you talk about the rejection of Trump, both are competing views as to what America is about. And I think we see this globally. So if we look at China, there's this concept of a strong ascendant China. If we look at Russia, there's this concept of a return to Russia's imperial roots. And the interesting thing I notice is that in a lot of ways, all these conversations are really around, in a way, establishing some sort of legitimacy. Part two of that is, I think when we talk about China, there's this quest to create this national identity, but there's also this severe tightening of the screws in the face of some economic headwinds. And when you look at a, a country like China and the interdependence it has on the United States, and at the same time, its own struggles to retain its own legitimacy, do you see those things potentially unwinding this interdependent order we have? Yeah, so part of the trouble is that the states that are most able to deal with the flows are the biggest states with the largest blocks of consumers. And Mm -hmm. the largest capacity for production is helpful. In the Chinese case, it gives China some level of leverage. But the huge consumer block in the United States is extremely valuable for the purposes of influencing international politics. To Mm -hmm. get a huge block like that, to have that kind of weight, You have to have a big state that has a lot of people and a lot of territory. And so it tends to be harder to craft these thick nationalist narratives that the whole population shares some set of values or some common culture, because it's just not true. When you have a big, large state, it's not true that the whole population shares a common set of values or a common culture. It's not even true in small states like Hungary, but it's easier to tell the story that it is in a small state like Hungary. In a big state like the United States or China or Russia, for that matter, there's a lot of internal diversity. And when you have more pluralism, legitimation stories have to be more pluralist, too. You have to tell more stories about why the state is legitimate. And those stories are going to be contradictory. They're not necessarily all going to fit together. And people are going to get into fights over why they ought to accept the state, not just whether they should, but why. They're going to have very different reasons for why they like the country. If you look at Democrats and Republicans, I don't think that either side is not committed to the United States as an idea or to the democratic system as an idea. But there are very different understandings of what that idea means, of why that idea has value. Similar kind of thing in China. You know, there's this huge emphasis on the party's capacity to grow the economy, increase the size of the economy. So when the growth rate goes from, according to official statistics, so it's unclear how true the statistics are, but goes from you know, 5 to 7% down to 2 or 3%, that narrative takes a big hit. And so when that narrative is taking a big hit, you have to pivot. In the case of Russia, you have this you know, charismatic leader who presents himself as omnicompetent. He's been around you know, 20 years, and uh, all the Western leaders, they come and go, but he's experienced. And then he goes into a boondoggle war in Ukraine that he's not winning. That very much conflicts with a lot of the legitimation stories that he's been telling. So Mm. in all of these states, the size forces you to tell a a more rickety package of stories. The very large number of stories gives you options. You can kind of emphasize some justifications at some times and other justifications at other times. In the States, we see a lot of emphasis on like descriptive representation, 
you should feel represented because there are people in the legislature who look like you or come from the groups that you are said to be part of. That representation sometimes comes at the expense of substantive representation, where you're getting policy that corresponds with your interests or needs. Sometimes you argue that representation is a standing for thing rather than an acting for thing because you aren't able to act for those people. So you try to stand for them instead, and that can buy you some time and some legitimacy during a period when you're otherwise not very able to move because you're stuck in the tar pit. I think we're seeing a lot of that. We're seeing a lot of the big states pivoting how they justify themselves, trying to come up with new terms, new ways of understanding why the state is legitimate so that they can get through this period where they're suddenly finding they're not able to deliver on all of the things that they used to deliver on. Uh, The smaller states, it's easier for them to just play up this game that they, in a very thick cultural sense, reflect the people who live there. The Hungarian government, it's a tiny little state. It has a much easier time pretending that all Hungarians are the same and that they all have a common shared culture. You can't really get away with telling that story in China or the United States. And that's what I picked up from reading some of your your recent stuff. And it seems to me that there's this pull and tug between liberalism, which to define that for the listener, is this embrace of free trade, free markets, free movement across borders, and nationalism, this effort to define the national identity of a people. And it seems to me that as liberalism continues to make it more difficult for the state to deliver what it used to deliver to the people, that nationalism and that conversation about national identity becomes more and more important. Yeah, liberalism and nationalism were born twins. As ideas, they came into the history of political thought together, and they rely very much on each other. Liberalism by itself isn't very satisfying. Just flows, flows for their own sake without any of the Other kinds of substantive value that people have that they think of as non-market value, whether it's to do with faith, family, whether it's to do with technology, whether it's to do with um, labor unions, community. There's lots of different kinds of things apart from flows that people care about. And nationalism tries to tell a story about how the state provides for those cultural things. If you try to do nationalism without liberalism, then you end up rejecting the flows and that causes you economic distress. And then you run into trouble because even if the state is providing you with these culturally satisfying narratives, it's not providing you with economic growth and your state is getting poorer relative to other states and the people living in your state can see that over time. So if you try to do liberalism without nationalism, there's a crisis of meaning. If you try to do nationalism without liberalism, the economy goes bust. And either way, you aren't going to be able to legitimate that project for very long. Liberalism and nationalism have always, to some degree, relied on each other. But increasingly, they don't like each other. They don't want to have to go together. And they're looking for what's some other way that we could do this. And in the piece that you're referencing, I talked about the possibility of a kind of republicanism as another possible handmaiden for liberalism where it's not that there's an American nation with a shared American culture. It's a bunch of different states with different state identities that are patched together into a federation. And so that kind of republicanism, because it has a long tradition in the United States, it's been around a long time, I do think it competes with nationalism as another way of connecting people to the society. This idea of a kind of 
thin political connection. We may be very different from each other in terms of what we believe, in terms of religious values, in terms of uh, social issues, but we're committed to the same constitution, the same political system, to democracy. That's a you know, an old idea in the United States in a way that we've managed to deal with enormous amounts of difference in language and race and so on. Imperfectly, but that's how we've tried to deal with it. The import of nationalism, the idea that the United States has to have a thick national culture that everybody's supposed to fit into, is a kind of foreign European idea here that isn't going to work because we're too pluralist. And of course, the response to attempts to say that the United States has a thick national identity is to kick up these groups. So that I think there are some Republicans at this point who act as if there's a thick national identity. At the same time, there are Democrats who argue for a kind of patchwork of group identities. But both of these things are looking for a kind of thick representation where the state is really mirroring your cultural values back at you in this very thoroughgoing and satisfying way, whether it's a patchwork of different groups or one American national concept, it's this very thick notion of there are these groups of people who have these values and the state has to reflect those values. The federal government in the early period in the United States did not really reflect any particular set of Americans' values. It was a talking shop for people with different values to come together and sort out practical problems. And their commitment was to the talking shop and not to some particular American thing. You know, that notion of an American thing grew and developed over time. But if you try to, to split the United States off from republicanism and make it into a nationalist thing, it's just not really going to get traction. It's too big and too diverse. The same goes for China. And you see China in its attempt to do that ends up having to persecute and, and horribly mistreat minority populations. Any state that tries to have too thick a national identity for the actual level of pluralism that it's got runs into legitimation problems. The trouble is once you introduce that kind of thick unity idea, it's very difficult to go back and get away from that again because the idea of having a state that reflects your values in that totalizing way is very enticing to people. So once you give them this idea that there could be a government that thickly represents their religious values or their uh, you know, liberal social values or whatever, it's very hard for them to then accept, hey, we live in a pluralist society where people have very different views and it's not a fight that you can win. The culture war is not a war you can win and by fighting it, it creates divisions that prevent the talking shop from working as a talking shop and those practical problems from actually being solved. And that's what the federal government is for. It's for dealing with a set of practical problems to do with the economy and foreign policy. It's not a place to wage a totalizing culture war over national identity. And if you try to make it do that, it just becomes dysfunctional. Do you think that in a way, one of the myths we inherited out of the Great Depression was this idea of a very strong, active, muscular federal government. And in a lot of ways, what we've seen in the post-World War II era is the outcome of the federal government really growing beyond what it was designed to do. And that maybe back prior to World War II, prior to the Depression, when most people's interaction with the federal government consisted of a trip to the post office, was actually the country maybe functioning 
more like it should have, or more at least like it was designed to do. Yeah. Part of the trouble is that the federal government had to take on a larger role in the economy in the 30s to alleviate the depression. And states all over the world took on a larger role in the economy during that period because it became clear that you could not continue and maintain legitimacy if you didn't deal with the unemployment problem. It was too large a problem, too big in scale. You had to do something. And just as importantly, you had to be seen to be doing something. Not only did you have to build things, you had to put the federal government's name on everything that was built with its money. Once we moved into having governments that intervened more heavily in the economy, those economic interventions have cultural consequences. Uh, Even if they are framed as being purely economic interventions, they have cultural consequences. And a lot of what we've seen is a sense, I think, on the part of conservatives that the war on poverty in the 60s had a set of cultural consequences that people on the right in the United States don't like. And therefore, they've tried to frame the economic interventions of the state as cultural interventions as part of a culture war. So the welfare state becomes a cultural policy rather than an economic policy. Uh, And that framing of some of the, the functions that are now very difficult to get out of, At this point, if you were to get rid of the federal government's unemployment policy or or its its welfare state functions, what you would then have is a set of states competing with each other to attract investment. And this is what happens in every part of the economy where the federal government is silent. The states start competing for flows of cash with each other. And the state's competition for flows of cash can often result in serious problems. When states cut their tax rates to the bone to attract cash, they then sometimes end up unable to provide for public services. So they attract Mm -hmm. a lot of people by cutting the tax rate and a lot of businesses and a lot of jobs. But then that those added people increase the burden on the public services. And then because they cut the tax rate, they don't have the funding to fund quality public services. And then in the long run, if you get an erosion of the public services, that can lead to a situation where you're constantly importing workers from, say, states where the education system is better, but you're also taking the jobs from those states. So gradually, you're destroying the ability of those states to fund their education systems. So then as you, you know, a state like Texas, say, if, if Texas takes all the jobs from California and it imports all of the workers who are educated in California, eventually the Californian economy is destroyed by that competition. And then what happens is that California is forced to cut its school budget. And then the state of Texas can no longer import workers from California. And it's in a situation where because its tax rates are low, its school system isn't very good. So it can't produce a competitive skilled labor force. This is what happens when the federal government is totally silent in the modern economy. The flows take over. And in the same way, because we don't have any kind of international government, The flows take over when we start dealing with international questions, and it becomes a matter of which particular states are the strongest. So when the federal government is silent, the strongest states, they start to dictate the flows. California's answer to Texas is that California is the consumption hub in the states. There's an enormous amount of consumption that occurs in California. So if you start diminishing the ability of the Californians to consume by siphoning off the jobs, that's going to erode the overall economic capacity of the country. And in the long run, that will have a negative effect on Texas. So when you play this kind of game where the states compete for the flows, it's a game that is often a losing game for everybody. 
And so mm-hmm. federal interventions in the economy are necessary to prevent government by the flows. But once the federal government intervenes in the economy, those interventions have cultural consequences. And that invites people to start to view the federal government as a manager of the culture. And then that invites them to start playing games with it. And you alluded to this in, in, your, in what you just said, but isn't that what's happening at a macro level across the world where countries are making themselves more attractive for outside investment? I, I mean, obviously there's been a lot of talk about how America's industrial hubs have really just exported jobs overseas due to lower labor costs, due to lower environmental regulations, and, and we kind of have seen that happen in the Rust Belt, where you have, an, you have a, a hollowed out tax base as a result of this free flow of, of capital. Yeah, from the point of view of the global economy, we're a giant California. You know, we mm-hmm. consume a lot. We have relatively ritzy public services relative to most countries, relatively high standard of living relative to most countries. We consume an awful, awful, awful lot. It's why if California changes its regulations for what's allowed to be sold in California, Everybody changes, right? Because California is a huge consumption hub in the same way if the United States says, if you want to sell in the United States, you have to produce this way or that way. Other countries change their policy in response to that. So we have more weight in this game of flows than other countries do, but it's still a game of flows and we're still subject to it, just as California would be if the federal government didn't step in at all and it was completely subject to this game of flows with states like Texas. And already, the degree to which it's subject to the game of flows with states like Texas is a constant issue in Californian politics. Mm -hmm. California, Illinois, New York, they're always struggling to fund their pension programs because they're competing with states that don't bother to have that same level of expenditure. In the same way, at the global level, we deal with the same problems. And you can imagine how hard it is for the countries that are small and don't have large consumer bases that are completely subject to that game with absolutely no recourse. At least we're big and we have a big consumer base. That gives us some weight and some ability to tow things around. The thing is, we've been so mired in this cultural conflict that we're not really performing the role of towing things around very well. And people can see there's all this talk about, you know, during the Trump administration about the United States not being as powerful as it used to be. But if the the Federal Reserve jacks up the interest rate, It has an enormous consequence for everybody all over the world very, very quickly. All these other currencies, all these other central banks are adjusting to get their policy to line up with what the United States is doing. Even when they know that doing that may lead to recession, the consequences of not doing it in terms of what it can do to their currency is so enormous that they're compelled to make policy in a way that aligns with American policy. Liz Truss, her whole political career and reputation and legacy as a human being has been destroyed by her inability to understand this fundamental situation and act accordingly. Uh, so, yeah, we're, we're a giant California. Is there a model or is there a way for us to unwind this in a way? So, in the old days, when more wealth was straightforwardly tied to territory. And if you had territory, then you had wealth. And if you didn't have territory, then you didn't have it because most wealth was agricultural or it was mineral wealth that you could extract out of the ground. In those old days, controlling the land was most important. 
Now it's about controlling the flows. So the way you construct an empire is different because your interest is now in flows rather than land as such. And when you try to control land, you run into these legitimation problems. It's very hard to get people to accept your control over the land if you have some kind of nationalist narrative about who you are that doesn't include them. Mm -hmm. And because a lot of states are trafficking in these nationalist narratives to try to deal with their legitimation problems internally, and the biggest states are the ones with the most internal problems that play the most cultural games, right? Because they have to do that, if they then try to add territory, A, it doesn't really improve their ability to control the flows. B, it's very expensive to try to add territory. And then C, the people won't accept it because you have this narrative that excludes them. So conquest is much harder than it used to be. It used to be that you could include people relatively easily uh, in, a, in a big old-fashioned empire by giving the elites in the, in the big cities you know, certain rights and uh, treating them in, uh, in accordance with you know, feudal vassalage norms. You know, there were things you could do in terms of law that would get people to accept conquest. Uh, these days, that's much, much harder to do. So that I would say that is a big, big difference. It's about flows, and states are not as well equipped to deal with flows as they are to deal with land and territory. States mm. were originally built and designed for land and territory. Flows are less manageable for them. So if we take, if we go, if we take China, for example, you know, China is a country that in some ways has tried to insulate itself from this issue of flow. So capital flows are strictly regulated. How's that worked out for them? The problem with China is it doesn't have a consumer market that's large enough to consume what it produces. This has been a chronic problem for China. So if there's any disruption to the trading relationship with the Western countries, with the big consumer countries, China would be in enormously deep trouble very, very fast. It's too dependent on the continuation of Western liberal democracies with huge consumer bases. So if it were to succeed in displacing those states without solving this problem of lack of consumption, its success would be its own undoing. If it weakens the United States or the European countries in any significant way economically, that success would be its undoing. Unless China is able to redistribute some of its economic growth to favor consumption. The thing is that by this point, China's constructed all these big housing companies and, and big production outfits and it's created a bunch of elites that make their money from operating this export-driven economy. And these elites don't have an interest in transitioning the economy to a consumer-driven economy. If anything, they want mm -hmm. to frustrate that as much as possible. And the government, while it has sizable ability to try to rein in particular rich people that it views as corrupt or, or misbehaving, has to worry a bit about what might happen if it were to try to make a very quick, rapid move toward a consumer-driven economy. Elites within China do not necessarily have the same interest as the Chinese state as a whole. And this is a problem that afflicted the Soviet Union, too. You know, as the Soviet Union grew and developed, it produced a set of industrial outfits that had their own interests that often contravened what was necessary economically to keep the state competitive. Yeah, and it seems like almost we're, we kind of have the same problem here, and it seems like this might be a, a global problem, which is 
what is in the interest of the elites isn't necessarily satisfying the masses. And we're seeing in one way or another unrest peak its head up. So in China, for example, we don't see the unrest. Information's tightly controlled. However, there's enough information getting out to show us that A, there's some dissent, and B, that the government's very concerned with it. I mean, I, I don't believe for a second that these lockdowns are about COVID. You know, I think, I think the zero COVID policy is more a case of exercising tighter control over a potentially unhappy population. I think if you look in the United States, part of the reason why our politicians argue over cultural issues is because the economic issues aren't ones that necessarily correspond to the elites as well. Yeah, people think that if you are unfamiliar with a political system, it can be easy to treat it as if it were what it tries to present itself to be, a homogenous thing with a single unitary interest. Every state wants to portray itself as a single thing with a homogenous unitary interest. Uh, every state tells its own people that that's what it is, and every state wants to, to tell the world that that's what it is. You know, China would love for us to view it as a single unitary thing with one point of view. But once you get underneath the surface, what you find is different factions within the elite that have different goals. And those conflicts within the elite play an enormous role in guiding the politics. Uh, oftentimes, intra-elite conflict matters more than conflicts between elites and masses. In many situations, the mass is so weak relative to the elite that the intra-elite conflict becomes more important. And I think in states like Russia and China, that's a, a very clear case where a lot of the time people who are looking for a legitimation problem in, say, Russia, look for there to be a, a conflict between the Russian people and Putin. But if there is a legitimation breakdown in Russia, it's not going to be the people versus Putin. It's going to be elites within the Russian military apparatus who are dissatisfied with the conduct of the war. And the same thing in China, it's factions within the party or factions within the industry that are the big issue for Xi Jinping, not the ordinary Chinese person. What about the United States? Yeah, in the United States, we have you know, a tech sector that has very different interests from, say, a lot of businesses in the United States that want to sell cheap Chinese products. You know, a tech sector that's worried about its proprietary stuff getting ripped off. A tech sector that is concerned about having to source rare earth metals from a state that you know, may decide to not cooperate and say Walmart, which just wants you know, cheap stuff, cheaper stuff mm -hmm. that other people can get to take advantage of its big supply chains. There are also major differences in interest between people who run businesses that are based in the United States and people who run global businesses that have a significant presence in the United States. You know, if you are you know, the CEO of McDonald's, you have a much greater stake in the consumer capacity of the ordinary American than you might if you are running a company that doesn't sell goods and services to ordinary people, like, say, Goldman Sachs, right? The people who live near the McDonald's don't have money to buy burgers. McDonald's doesn't do particularly well, right? Burgers can't go all over the world in a pinch. If you make a burger and nobody nearby eats it, the burger rots and you just lose the money. 
So mm-hmm. businesses like that that are tied down to a place, what we might call trad businesses, those businesses are more dependent on the state, are more tied to the state's fate because they're more territorial, right? And you could think, well, at least McDonald's is a big, you know, multinational thing. Uh, you can imagine your local independent restaurant. That restaurant is completely dependent on the local economy. It has no alternative places to go for money. You know, a McDonald's yeah. franchisee with 20 restaurants throughout the state, you know, has a little bit more flexibility. Uh, so the more you are dealing with a business that's rooted in place, the more that business has to worry about the state's fate. And the more you have a business that is globetrotting, the more that business is concerned with the flows. And is it fair to say that there's a greater percentage of the economy that's globetrotting than ever was before? And that might be one of the biggest challenges we're facing. Yeah, certainly than in the past. That's not to say that there isn't still a sizable amount of stuff that's rooted in physical space. And so we, we get these big conflicts between people who are concerned about local economies in, in physical space and people who don't really care about that and who want a favorable regulatory regime for moving money all over the place. Yeah. And those conflicts you know, have been with us, I would say, increasingly since World War II. And there's been a gradual increase in the importance of the flows since World War II, almost right away, because the rounds of trade negotiations you know, really got going almost immediately after World War II. Hmm. It almost seems like you have groups of people who are affected by the same problem colliding with each other. And and I think the immigration debate or the debate over uh, illegal immigration specifically is probably the biggest example of that. You have people fleeing the effects of climate change. You have people fleeing the effects of economic instability, in part which are caused by the state's inability to control capital flows, the state's inability to stabilize its own economy in the face of these larger, more established economies. And we have nationalism being used as a weapon, motivating people who are affected by globalization against people who are coming to a given country because of globalization, in a way. Yeah. And I think what we're going to see is there are certain states that are geographically near the big consumer zones, but are not part of them, like Mexico and Turkey. These states will increasingly try to benefit from this situation by extracting payments from the consumer blocks for the service of managing the flows of people. So if you're Mexico or you're Turkey, you are physically located at a choke point And that gives you some leverage that you can use. If you're a country that's further away, you don't have that kind of leverage. And it's much harder for you to use the the flows as a negotiating point. But Turkey and Mexico are increasingly very good at using the flows as a bargaining chip to get concessions, economic concessions, from the United States and from the European Union. And that's just purely on the basis of they're located at a very geographically useful location from the point of view of those consumer blocks. And I think mm. as we get more disruption, as the flows create more trouble, and climate change too, more trouble in countries that are warm in the middle of the world, there's mm. going to be even more leverage for these states on the hinterlands of the consumer economies. Those states are going to be able to become 
middling economies on the basis of getting paid to manage flows. If I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly, it sounds like what you see happening are countries bordering the wealthy world being used as almost buffer zones in a way and being funded to act as buffer zones between the rich and the poor world. Yeah. I mean, when I say dinosaur in a tar pit, you might think, well, that's something that'll be resolved in a few days. But it's almost like we're thinking in, in geologic time here. We could be a mm-hmm. dinosaur in a tar pit for 100 years. Hmm. And we could just be in a world where states are dinosaurs in tar pits, where there's nothing that's bigger, but also where you don't get out of the tar pit. There are really two alternatives. You know, states dealing with the flows, dinosaur in the tar pit, something being set up that governs the flows, some kind of international or global political system that the ordinary person can take grievances directly to. That's very unlikely because that, those kinds of systems cannot speak in nationalism at all. They know they can't. They're very difficult to access or interact with if you're an ordinary person. And we see this with the European Union. The European Union really has a hard time framing what it's doing as politically responsive to the ordinary European. And increasingly, Mm -hmm. the European Union has adopted a kind of civilizational language that is its nearest equivalent that it can get to of nationalism, where it's, it's framing itself as, as almost like a Christendom or a Holy Roman Empire kind of language. We're seeing, I mm-hmm. think, more of that as the leaders of European countries realize that they have to find a way to defend the European project in a way that will garner legitimacy. They're trying to draw on right-wing narratives, but because they can't use nationalism, they're trying to use civilizational. So we're, I mm. think we're seeing a cultural turn to the right in European countries on that basis. It's not nationalist, it's increasingly civilizational. And what we'll see is civilizationalism versus nationalism in Western Europe. Neither one, I think, is particularly attractive, but there you go. The other thing that can happen is that the flows can be cut. There can be some kind of crisis that really breaks the flows. Now, the trouble with that kind of thing is that that would be economically enormously devastating. It would massively reduce living standards for everybody because all of the supply chains would be not just disrupted, but broken. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden we would discover that there are all sorts of industries that we don't adequately have here that we would need here to be able to maintain anything resembling the regular standard of living. We're not able to transition to the kind of production that we had in the forties. Plus we've got an extra hundred million people in the United States versus the the forties. The scale of everything is, is completely out of whack. So, yeah. The options are continuing to manage the flows with this you know, kind of nasty civilizational rhetoric in Europe and the payment of you know, paying Mexico and Turkey to play border guards, uh, creating some kind of global system that would really struggle to generate legitimacy. If you think the United States and China have a hard time, try building you know, the European Union or a, a global institution. Or you know, breaking the flows and going back to a world where land is what matters and dinosaurs run the earth. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please consider leaving it a review. You can also get additional commentary on this episode and other issues of the week by signing up for my email newsletter at ydhty.com news. Now, we covered a lot in this conversation, and here are some of the things I pulled away. 
Number one is that nations have become a lot less powerful as the world has become more globalized and governments have lost control over the flows of money and economic activity. And if you define the economy simply into sectors that depend on location, such as manufacturing, retail, and agriculture, and those that benefit from being integrated with the outside world, such as tech and finance, you start to see the divide between red and blue America. Increased integration in the global economy gives finance and tech companies more market to sell into, and it gives those who work in manufacturing and agriculture another market to compete with. Now, neither party really campaigns on this issue because neither party can really do anything about it. So they sell competing visions of America as a way to channel voter anger and gain support. And my political bias is gonna be reflected in the next comment. But what I see in our political dialogue is a Republican Party that's built a very powerful connection with those most affected by globalization via a more nationalist platform based on traditional cultural norms, strong borders and the like, and a Democratic Party that garners a good chunk of their support from people turned off by the GOP's platform. And the resolution to this, oddly, seems to be to put more power in the hands of multilateral institutions not entirely in our control, but that creates its own problems. Because as Ben said, part of what gives nations significance is the sense of group identity they provide, and that becomes harder and harder as the group becomes larger and larger. And in the September 15th episode on the case for a new Bretton Woods, my guests made a call for a new global financial framework to address inequities in the financial system and mitigate the effects of climate change. It was done once after World War II, and it would be nice if we could do it before World War III, assuming that hasn't already started. I don't have any clear answers on this one, but it's something I'll be exploring in future episodes. As always, Music courtesy of QuellerTac, YDHTY's Director of Continuous Improvement is the Admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in loving memory of the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Bye-bye. <laughs>